Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. You know, December is obviously the perfect month to talk about little women. But I think this day in particular that we're recording is especially a good day to talk about little women. One of the most important films directed by a woman based on one of the most important novels ever written by a woman about women. Because today, Every man who lives in our apartment building, especially our downstairs neighbor, is just screaming at what is likely just sports or a video game. You know, a a true atrocity worthy of screaming swears and slurs so loudly that the entire building can hear it. It's like screaming with the intensity of like he came home to find his whole family murdered. Yeah. But he lives alone. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, what are you so upset about? Yeah, so we're like prepping. We're like, we're going to talk about little women and sisterhood. And you just hear like, bah! And it's like, what is happening today? Yeah, so um, I don't know. It's festive because it's like when you go and visit your family and they're screaming about something. Mm -hmm. If you hear it on the recording, then it's ambience. (laughs) And if you don't hear it, it's because Harmony is very good at her job. Now we just have good mics now. That's true. (laughs) But yes, we are finally talking about Little Women. This is a title that we're going to come back to because there are multiple versions of this. There are six film versions of Little Women? Yes, we will I don't think we're going to do all of them. No, we're not going to do like the silent version. We'll come back for for Greta's. Yeah, we'll come back for Greta's. We'll eventually come back for Katherine Hepburn. Like, that'll for sure happen the other ones probably not is this uh, our new black christmas oh it might be i'm not saying that i'm not not putting that in stone but we did black christmas three years in a row maybe we'll do three oh, little women all, the all little of these women, women all of our little women dozens of little women <laughs> but yes we are talking about little women based on louisa may alcott's very very just seminal novel and uh this is the 1994 version aka the winona Ryder version that's usually how people describe it mm-hmm. but harmony what is your exposure to little women what what do you know um i know that little women exists okay and then i didn't remember little women existed until we got the most recent little women and i was like oh that's right little women uh-huh <laughs> i I did not know what this movie's about. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the full extent of the cast. Mm-hmm. I we we booted this up and the thumbnail was like, "Wow, Susan Sarandon's in this." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cast in this is kind of bananas. Yeah, but like I know just 
nothing. I was going purely into Little Women with absolutely no preconceived notions about what this is about in the slightest. Were you pleasantly surprised or extremely disappointed that there is no instance of somebody screaming Christopher Columbus? I mean, that is disappointing. Um, I will say that there's no Bob Odenkirk just being like, <laughs> ah, my little women. Uh, instead, like a similar line goes to Susan Sarandon referring to her little women. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is a thing for other people. In my brain, whenever they say the name of the movie where it's like, and it's like something usually like innocuous, like you watch Rush Hour and it's just like, what? It's Rush Hour. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just literally describing LA Rush Hour. It has nothing to do with the fucking movie at all. <laughs> just like, yeah, it's Rush Hour. And the thing in my brain is like opening credits to CSI Miami where it's Roger Daltrey going like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's what it smash cuts to my brain every time someone says the name of the movie in a film. <laughs> Could you imagine if when Joe March puts, you know, opens up the the manuscript of her book and it says Little Women that just suddenly the who kicks in? Um, I, I mean, that that's an edit that would make me laugh hysterically. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> BJ, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. Say you have a lot more history with Little Women than I do. Oh, 100% I have history with Little Women. Okay, cool. Of course. Cool. Uh, Little Women is a book that I read pretty young because I was... Oh, that's right. People read this in school, don't they? Well, yes, but also like... We didn't. Not to push up my my AR reading glasses a little too high, but no, I was always a gifted reader. So oh. I was reading heavy chapter books way before. Aren't you fancy? I know. <laughs> I think we... I, I think this is just a thing about little women in general, but I'm pretty sure we didn't read this in school probably because all the boys would be like, oh, girls. Yeah. So what's shocking is that little women doesn't end up being read a lot in schools because of that reason. But I do know that a lot of like women's literature courses in college will start with Little Women because it is a YA book. Mm-hmm. Um, Little Women is considered to be kind of the first like true YA novel, which is really exciting and very cool and definitely worth you know discussing. Um, it's a semi-autobiographical book. Um, I read this very, very young. I watched the movie very, very young. Um, the movie we did watch in school, that is for sure. If it's like this one, I assume. Yeah, it's this one where it's like, oh, our teacher's out of school. This is based on a book. Let's watch Little Women. <laughs> so that would happen. And the girls would always be very invested and like very emotional about it. And the boys would be like, uh, everything's old. I don't like it. I'm bored. Grow up. <laughs> Sorry, we can't all watch Red Dawn. I don't know. Like we watched The Crucible, and I was also quite bored of of that when we watched it in school. The Crucible is a much better like live production of the play than a movie for me. But that's just me. How dare you disrespect a fellow Winona Ryder joint? Listen, she doesn't make <laughs> exclusively good movies, but she is responsible for why this movie got made, and we will definitely talk about that when we get towards our context. But for people who have never seen Little Women, uh, here is your plot synopsis. Are you ready for it? Yes. The March sisters live and grow in post-Civil War America. Sure. That's that's all they're giving us. I mean, this is this is really just a slice of life story, right? <laughs> I mean, a bit. Like, it is very much a naturalistic approach to the storytelling. This isn't a big war epic. This isn't a story that's just like, oh, no, we're in poverty. Because, like, they are in poverty, so that's interesting. But I it's, mean, it, poverty they isn't had, the point. They had money at some point. They're they're doing better than the Hummels. Mm-hmm. So it's like their, pov- their, 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 their riches are dwindling. Mm-hmm. 
So maybe they're not as wealthy as they were, but they still have like a very nice house. So what was going on in 1994 when this movie came out? A whole lot of fuck nothing, (laughs) for starters. Um, So we did Anastasia just last week, so I'm not going to go too far into the fact that like, you know, what we covered in that episode, which is also, you know, a period piece girl movie. Um, the, the, the bread and butter of this era is the Disney formula. That's pretty much what we're putting all of our time and effort into as far as like young people films are concerned. But in regards to like dedicated teen fair, it's pretty slim pickings here in 1994. Mm-hmm. As far as our alum is concerned, we have done Swan Princess, very much in the Anastasia camp of things, and The Next Karate Kid. But beyond those, it's probably not a good sign that your most high-profile teen release outside of this, which is not generally lumped in with, like, teen fare. It's more of, like, you know, historical drama, period piece, Oscar film. Like, it gets a lot of other qualifiers before you think of it as a teen film. Mm-hmm is a New Zealand indie picture called Heavenly Creatures. Oh my God, I love you, Heavenly Creatures. We will absolutely be tackling you when you are available for streaming wide release, but it's hard to find. Everybody asks for it in the suggestion box. We want to do it. But it's it's the spice world rule of just being like it's like impossible to get your hands on. Right. Legally. So then if you haven't already seen it, then you're completely left out of the conversation. We don't want to do that to people. Yeah. So I mean, aside from Heavenly Creatures, uh, there's there's Camp Nowhere with Christopher Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's you know more uh, his the Adams Family Values thing where it's like I'm gonna start doing like goofy somewhat somewhat more unstable quality family features in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of his MO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I did some digging. Some of the more notable things would include a, an Andrew Fleming movie called Threesome, mm-hmm. which, according to the Wikipedia, ranked on several worst of lists for that year. Oh, great. And um, a film called PCU, or Political Correctness University, barf. starring Jeremy Piven. Fucking barf. Fraternities are illegal because of political correctness. A fucking barf. They, they were doing this shit 30 years ago as if, like, the woke mob is a fresh concept. It's so fucking stupid. Yeah. Th- that movie sounds like I would rather, like, drive into oncoming traffic. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that's it. Ugh. That's it. So there was an oral history of Little Women 1994 published in the New York Times in 2019 ahead of the release of Greta Gerwig's Little Women. And I wanted to pull some quotes from it in the context because it is like none of this should be surprising to us, but it is still infuriating because how dare they? Mm. In 1994, a year of testosterone heavy films like Pulp Fiction and The Shawshank Redemption, a female director teamed up with a female producer female writer, and female-led cast to make a movie based on a book by a female author. Male studio executives wrote off Little Women, the third big-screen adaptation chronicling the 19th-century March sisters as mere family Christmas sap ahead of its December release. But those involved in the project knew they were working on something special. I don't think anyone really expected it to do as well as it did. It wasn't the talk of the town, Winona Ryder said. Made for $18 million, Jillian Armstrong's version of Little Women, starring Ryder as Joe March and Susan Sarandon as the matriarch Marmy, was a critical and box office triumph, earning $95 million worldwide, or about $165 million today, three Oscar nominations, and a devoted fan base. Mm-hmm. Would it surprise you to learn that male executives were like, mm, 
I don't think there's a market for this. No. Why, why would that ever shock me? I know it doesn't. I'm just being <laughs> rhetorical. I'm making conversation Hypothetically here. speaking, if you were shocked by this. <laughs> so the screenplay is written by uh, Robin Swickord, who is also the mother-in-law of Paul Dano because she's the mother of Zoe Kazan. Love that for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amy Pascal, who at the time was the executive vice president of production of Columbia. Amy Pascal's worked for like everywhere in town. They spent 12 years shopping this around, trying to get it made, Uh and they couldn't get it made. Um, Amy Pascal said that she's always loved the book. It's always been a big thing for her. Um, And then Robin Swickard said that people were not interested in a movie with a lot of women in it, especially women wearing long dresses. Someone said to us they would do a modern-day version, like if the marches are in the 90s and not happy about having a car for Christmas. Uh. Which, like... Okay, you can absolutely do like an updated Little Women. We would see that a lot in the 90s. Yeah, we loved redoing classic literature in the 90s. But like, if you're pitching the classic like Little Women story and someone is like, "Mm, what if instead modern? Like, that's rude. Like, if they're gonna, if somebody wants to make a modern version, they're gonna pitch the modern version. Since since we had obliterated uh, Scarlet Fever come the 90s, what would one of them have died of in the 90s? Yeah, it would have been awful. Like, like no matter we, what it would have been. All, all of the really lethal things that you could have gotten when they decide to rub a sick baby on your face. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what that would have been. What would the... No one dies. Let's re- <laughs> let's remove that really gutting important part of the story. <laughs> it would have been some like very after school specialty thing. Like she would have had like an eating disorder or something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I, not that eating disorders are ridiculous. Just like you know how these fucking fools think about things. Sure. Um, and then producer Denise Denovi said at the time it was almost impossible to get female driven films made. They called them needle in the eye movies, where a guy would say to his wife, "I'd rather have a needle in the eye than go to that movie." And this one had both little and women in the title. Freaking deadly. Well. Yeah. So obviously this movie was, nobody believes in it. It's very similar to the conversation that we had about the first Twilight movie, about how despite the fact that it is, that that book series, regardless of how you feel about it, was so popular and so like silver platter success story and studios still were like, hmm. I don't think girls are going to watch this. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, you're dumb as rocks. Are you kidding but me? People will watch Dead Poet Society. Fucking right. <laughs> God. Because it's about boys. Speaking of, uh, there's a new movie out this year called The Holdovers that has like such Dead Poet Society energy. Highly recommend it. Paul Giamatti's in that. If you haven't seen it, uh, Harmony hasn't seen it yet, but I can tell you. 10 out of 10. Approved. I worked in an event for that one. It's real good. It's a case of like every movie that came out this <laughs> it's year. It's really good. Um, but the way that they were able to kind of get this made is they got Winona Ryder on board because she was like on such a hot streak in this time period. Oh, yeah. Like the late 80s, all throughout the 90s, like that is Winona, baby. There's a pretty untouchable stretch Winona has from like 1987 with Beetlejuice all the way up like 10 years later mm-hmm. to The Crucible. Where she's pretty much unstoppable and we could do every single one of those movies on this show, basically. For real. Like, the year before this, she was in Age of Innocence, which is a Martin Scorsese movie, and she was nominated for her first Oscar. So, Mm -hmm. like, she was both, like, proving to be popular in terms of, like, teens loved her. They loved her in Edward Scissorhands. They loved her in Heathers. But also, she has, like, 
acclaim because she is an Oscar nominee. She's so damn talented. She's so damn talented. Yeah. Um, and so Winona Ryder got on board, but the circumstances for how she got on board are so wild that I just had to share them. So the previous year before they like started production, uh, a 12 year old named Polly Class was abducted and murdered from Petaluma, California. And Polly wanted to be an actress and wanted to star in a production of Little Women. Like that was her dream. So Petaluma is Winona Ryder's hometown. So Polly's parents ended up giving Winona Ryder like Polly's copy of Little Women, which is like a, a, a way to connect her to this and was like, yeah, I wanted to do this for her. But what's th this is where it's like very weird happenstance. Um, if you all know of or at least have heard of the podcast My Favorite Murder, um, this is Karen Kilgariff's hometown murder is Polly Class. So this horrible tragedy like unthinkably horrible tragedy is kind of like the root of both Winona Ryder signing on to Little Women and also the podcast My Favorite Murder getting started which then kind of lit the flame of the true crime like era that we're currently living in which is it, it is Sylvia Plath's death equals the Iron Giant levels of crazy domino effects in yeah. my brain. Like, I cannot wrap my head around it. It's like, yeah. what the hell? Um, so, you know, there was a lot of, like, emotional stock in them making Little Women. Like, everybody who was on this took it very, very seriously. And I think that is fantastic because that's why this works. Like, I think you can tell how much care is put into every single frame, every single decision in this movie, because everyone knew how important it was. Oh, yeah. Like, especially when you look at this cast, this is like, I don't know, like Danny Ocean's like, I'm going to get all of the best people in their fields together to make a production of Little Women starring mm -hmm. all of the hottest actresses in the age demo. Yeah. And Susan Sarandon's there. Yeah. And so they had been courting Susan Sarandon, and she had a rule at the time that she would not do roles unless um, she, she didn't have to leave her kids. Mm -hmm. And so then they were able to shoot in the summer when like her kids were out of school, which, oh, was, that makes sense. which was good. Yeah. Um, and they also had to court Jillian Armstrong to direct because they wanted a woman director. But it was the early 90s and there weren't a lot of like women directors that studios were able to look at and be like, oh yeah, we trust them because- I mean, they, they don't do that now. They don't do it now, <laughs> right. And there's like, like you, so many people. You've seen how people handle the Marvels. Uh, no I, one has any faith in female started. directors. Don't get me fucking started. Um, <laughs> but so they, the big thing they tried to do when they were courting her, uh, according to this, again, this is from the oral history. The big sell was when they approached me and said, a woman has never directed this story. One of the most important stories ever written by a woman. And I said, no. After doing My Brilliant Career, which is a movie from 1979, I just thought, it's another period film about a feisty, intelligent girl who finally becomes a writer. But Denise Denovi was very persistent. So this producer was like, no, it has to be you. Please, for the love of God, it has to be you. Without me knowing that she has a thing called My Beautiful Career, it's just like, oh, yeah, like I'm just really looking back at this very young point in my life being like, yeah, I've achieved everything I want. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I don't need to do Little Women. <laughs> 
So obviously she did it and it ends up becoming her most successful film in her entire filmography because it rules and Mm. it's wonderful. But before we dive in any deeper into the actual story and the execution of Little Women, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Hey there, prom party. Congrats, we've all made it to the end of the year. Somehow, <laughs> over on the Patreon this month, for the month of December, we got, we got some fun stuff. We always have fun stuff, but it's festive fun stuff. We're talking toys for the Sadie Hawkins dance with small soldiers and the seasonally appropriate and ridiculously strongly casted Diner by Barry Levinson. For the musical milestones, we're talking about the the song of the season, All I Want for Christmas is You, and just Mariah's consistent rise as the most powerful Christmas force on the planet. And we are finishing up the four final episodes of My So-Called Life. Uh, You're going to get that in two parts, just because condensing four hours of TV into one episode just is not going to do them justice. In addition to all of the bonus episodes, we have the monthly playlist, this time themed around some of the best tracks of the year, in my opinion. Um, It's not totally all of my favorites, just because a lot of them are things that I've put in other playlists or plugged at the end of the episodes, and I don't want it to just be, like, super redundant. In addition to all of that, you get BJ's monthly newsletter, access to the suggestion box, and, of course, the ever-growing and extensive back catalog of things we have available on the Patreon, especially this time of year more than ever. If you're not able to financially support the podcast, we totally understand. Just share us with anybody who you think might enjoy what we do. Leave us a rating if you haven't already, and like give us some comments. Like, be, Let us know if you're excited about future episodes. Let us know how you feel about the current episodes. Like, We love seeing how enthusiastic everyone is about you know, the, what, what we're putting out in the world. So, with all that said, thanks so much. Back to the movie. Alrighty, let's talk about those March girls. Let's start with Joe March, Winona Ryder. She is our our She's eyes into character. this world. Yeah. How do you feel about Joe March? She's feisty. She is feisty. Like that seems to be her her thing. She's giving. I mean, I wouldn't go so far to call her a tomboy, but she's in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen actually a lot of people make, and again, without a context of what Little Women's about, but I've seen a lot of people make bold claims that like, oh, there's like a gender read to her because she wears mustaches and they do plays where they all dress as boys and she goes by Joe and she dresses and her pen name is is Joseph. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very valid read that's interesting to think about, but it also kind of undermines her as a character because I feel like the whole main arc of her is yes she wants to be a writer yes she wants to tell stories with her sisters and stuff but it really just comes down to this is how women got published mm-hmm. like it's her it it feels like she's taking on this very like masculine role because she doesn't like the expectations of what women are supposed to be Mm -hmm. a term that we would later call feminism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, like she's a very interesting character in her time. Yeah, I I agree completely. And something that I love so much about Joe is she is so full of personality. 
like a lot of my issues that happen with like period pieces is they always feel so stuffy. There's no goddamn personality. There's no personality. Who is anyone? But like I know who all the March sisters are. I, I, know, I can tell who their personalities are. Yeah. Yes. Like I know all their personalities and I love how creative Joe is. I love that she writes these big characters that she does voices when she's reading books. Mm-hmm. Like I love that about her. I loved Joe March when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to be Joe March because she would like to read and she was a writer and she was at the same time also like she was the like the mother hen of their group even though like her sister Meg is older Joe is the one that's always kind of like trying to get everyone to get their shit together she's spirited yeah Meg Meg feels like the oldest sister who is kind of I don't know I don't want to say passive she's more subtle mm-hmm. and she just people tend to defer to loud personalities for leadership mm-hmm that's, yeah, that's just natural. That's normal. De- definitely. Um, so that's that's very much Joe for me. I oh, I just I love her so much. I love too that she also has this like fiercely independent streak, but is also like a little self deprecating, mm-hmm. which is, I think is like something you don't see very often in like these like period films. Sure. Um, because you have the whole situation with Lori or Teddy or Mr. Lawrence or you know Christian Bale. Or- I. The, the fact that they repeatedly call him Mr. Lawrence, and I'm like, in my world, Mr. Lawrence is somebody else. <laughs> That's Plankton. That's the voice of Plankton, yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, she's got this, you know, relationship with, with Christian Bale, and the chemistry that the two of them have is so electric that even though I know, like, this is not how they end up, they end up, you know, just being the family they're always supposed to be, being the sibling relationship they're always supposed to be. But because they're so good together, you're like, but wait, I want them to end up together. Like, that sounds like the better choice. But it's like, no, it's not the better choice. I, I love that. I don't I don't know if I want them to end up together. I don't. Th- I don't. I don't think I ever wanted them to head, end up together while watching this. So many people do. So many people ship them. I'm sure they do. Like, okay, so... I had to ask BJ while we were watching this because I'm like, I don't know as much of Christian Bale's like younger career. But I was like, is this a period where he's like a teen heartthrob mm-hmm. between like this and Newsies? Mm-hmm. He's, he's a teen heartthrob. And she goes, yeah, totally. And, I, and maybe it's that I just know his more acclaimed work from like the 2000s onward. But like when he's talking to her and he's like proposing and he's like, no, I promise. No, it'll be great. I'll, tr- I'll treat you so good. I'll like, treat you so good. But not nearly as charming as Shorzy because no one is. Um, I just can't unsee Christian Bale intensity. Yeah. Where I'm like, no, this is bad. You're you're an intense man. You're too intense. <laughs> no, he's very, very charming. Um, this is a, a very good era for him. And in news that I'm sure Sarah Marshall already knows of, you know, you're wrong about and you are good. In case she doesn't know, apparently he taught all of the actors, all of the newsies choreography while they were on set, which I would kill to see if there is any sort of like video of that because I just oh I want it it's mm-hmm. just it just sounds so good um but also I think what doesn't help with the intensity is that he also plays opposite Samantha Mathis in the second half of the story when Amy has aged up and Samantha Mathis is also an American psycho mm-hmm. um so you know uh you, you get the two of them together and it kind of rewires your brain a little bit of like mm, this is not what I'm used to seeing the two of you interact like yeah I don't know. I just think that like I like him the most and I find him the most charming when he is like 
oh, he's a brother who's been admitted to our club. And it's like, I, I get for a boy, like we're just pivoting to Christian Bale now, I yeah, guess, in this are, conversation. But as a boy, obviously, like when you're, when you're like a little kid, you can hang out with girls and it's not a big deal. But like once you cross the sexual threshold in the 1800s, then it's like boys and girls don't hang out. They're not friends. Mm -hmm. So whatever love or fondness you have for the March family or Joe specifically, it's like, oh, this clearly must be love. Mm -hmm. Like I must be in love with you because what mm -hmm. else could this mean? Yes. Like I understand why he ends up going into this direction because he doesn't know what to do with his feelings. Th that's but exactly it. I never ever root for them to end up together because I'm like, no, but this is clearly like a family relationship. Yes. As soon as he was, as soon as that time jump happens and he's like, oh, I'm in love with you. I'm like, no, you're like siblings. Stop it. <laughs> no, you're totally right though. Like there's an amazing show on Apple TV plus that nobody watched called Platonic where Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen play platonic best friends that have been friends forever mm -hmm. and it's one of the few times I've ever watched a show that is specifically about a man and woman being friends and there is no romantic anything the only time there's any romantic undertones or even overtones is because it's what other people are putting on them because other people can't wrap their heads around the possibility that they are just friends yeah and so like I think that's really lovely to see in this story specifically of like Joe has this incredibly deep valuable friendship with him and it isn't romantic he thinks you know maybe it's romantic because he's trying to figure his stuff out but Joe's at least smart enough to be like no baby no I don't see you that way you're <laughs> like a brother to me you're like my brother before we had that kind of like <laughs> before he got before they understood the concept of being friend zoned Ugh, friend zoned <laughs> um, but you know he you know he takes it seriously and he's like yeah you're right like he's like heartbroken at first because you know that's it's a shock to be rejected no matter well, yeah, what totally but he recognizes that yeah no you're right this this is who we are you you're right you're right but then even still joe has those things where she's like i'm throwing away perfectly good you know proposal offers but she knows that's not for her mm -hmm. and so i do want while we're on joe we have to talk about her and like weirdly hot gabriel byrne um, of the professor. I'm sure. Her eventual love interest. Dur during the time, you know, you could marry way older men. Like, I, Susan Sarandon's always looked very good for her age, mm -hmm. as we could tell by everyone constantly obsessing over her honkers. <laughs> um, especially recently. Especially recently. We'll put a pin in that. We're coming back to it in a sec. But the father, who we see for, like, essentially, like, one scene. He has mm -hmm. like one scene worth of dialogue and then he's just kind of around mm -hmm. if, the, if he's going to be there at all. He looks so much older than Susan Sarandon. I know. Like it's common for like older men to marry younger women. But yeah, Frederick, mm -hmm. he looks like he's in his 40s. Uh, you, I don't know if he's actually he, that old. I think he was. <laughs> he looks like he's in his 40s and hitting on a 20 year old, mm -hmm. which for the era, that makes sense. I get that that's appropriate for the time period. That's mm -hmm. what's kind of that that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, oof, you're old enough to be her father, <laughs> sir. <laughs> well, so, okay, this does get into like a very interesting thing that happens with the casting in this movie. So, because traditionally they will just cast actors to play the girls as young and as old, like that's what they did with 
uh, the Greta Gerwig one, but they don't do that in this one with Amy. So mm-hmm. we have Kirsten Dunst as you know the twelve year old Amy, and then we have Samantha Mathis as the older Amy. So what ends up happening is that it ends up looking really weird when the two of them are next to. Christian Bale both times where he doesn't look like he's aged. No, they should have gave him facial hair after that time jump and not when he decided to go to like England and get a pirate mustache. (laughs) Yeah. Like that would have been maybe a slightly better choice, but because like canonically speaking, they're not as far apart in age as they seem when you look at them on screen like this um, because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't age. So Mm -hmm. then it just seems like really, really creepy. But we do have something similar happening with Joe, where Joe is young when she meets Frederick, but because they cast an actor who has to play her like believably as like a 15 year old as well as like mm-hmm. in her 20s, then she just scans way, way younger. And also just knowing Winona of this period, right. where she's playing like high schoolers all the time. Yeah. So it does scan even like the age gap seems even bigger. But something that I will always defend about their age gap relationship um because you know age gap relationships are a very very hot topic yes uh they always are we're fundamentally i'm not opposed to an age gap relationship however there are extenuating circumstances correct are you you know 40 years old and are they in college are they able to drink yet like what are the circumstances that make this get weird right how like and there there's always like the 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 grooming grooming aspect of all of it of like was this something that you kind of tricked them into i never think that joe has been groomed by frederick she genuinely is interested in him because he is the first man who has ever like challenged her intellectually she is very into him He is very into her. And when she disappears for a while, because, you know, spoiler alert, Beth is going to die. He's the one who chases after her. Like, Mm -hmm. he's very into her. This isn't like a, oh, well, that was fun. Now we're done. Or like, I need you to do this. Like, he changes his entire life to be with her. He genuinely loves her for who she is. Mm -hmm. Um, So it does feel different. It doesn't feel. He loves her so much, he won't let her write genre. You're better than genre, which like, (laughs) right, which, you know, no wonder the Oscars loved this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, and even to that point, like, I've definitely seen the complaint of like, how dare you not let her write genre? But like, Joe isn't super passionate about genre. She just thinks that's what'll get published. That's what's going to get published. And that's why she's writing it. So she's not writing what she's actually interested in or what actually speaks to her artistic soul. She's writing what she thinks she needs to write to get ahead, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we talked about that on our how to build a girl episode of this idea of having to fit into a very specific type of girl in order to survive a male dominated society. And he's one of the only men like in her life. That's like, no, you do you babe. Like you do you because that's, what's wonderful. So yeah, we could wax poetic about how the age gap is weird and all that, which of course, but as people looking at them as individuals and not as just like yet another age gap relationship. There's more going on here. I mean, there's also the, 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 the conversation to be had about why does she, is she drawn to an older man in the first place? Mm-hmm. Cause like Christian Bale in this movie, he's a boy. Mm-hmm. Teddy's a boy. He's a, he's a boy. You look yeah, at as a brother. Teddy. Yes. She calls him Teddy. Yes. Even after he's like, this is my wife, Amy, your sister. And she's like, oh, Teddy. And he's like, oh, it's nice to hear you call me Teddy again. Yep. My father used to read me all the German poets when I was a child. Really? That is most surprising. Well, my uh, 
Mother and father were part of a, a rather unusual circle in Concord. Do you know the word transcendentalist? But this is German romantic philosophy. We throw off all our constraints and we come to know ourselves through insight and experience. But <laughs> it goes out of fashion now. <laughs> well, not in the March family, I'm afraid. It's just that with all of this transcendence comes much emphasis on perfecting oneself. Ah, this gives you a problem. I'm hopelessly flawed. If only we could transcend ourselves without perfection. Like your poet, Walt Whitman, who, who rides up and down the streets of Broadway all day shouting poetry against the roar of the cards. Keep your silent woods, O oh nature. Your, your quiet, quiet places, places by, by the, the river, but by the woods. woods. Give me the, the streets, streets of, of Manhattan. Manhattan. I think we are all hopelessly flawed. As an intellectual who studies like transcendentalism, be drawn to a German teacher who can like wax poetic about philosophy and take her to the opera and explain the Italian of it. Right. She needs an intellectual equal. Like, that's what she's looking for. And I hate to even say this, but, like, Joe March is, like, she's the version of, like, the old soul. Like, mm. that is... When people say that, that's what they want, is is the Joe March. She actually is that. Yeah. This is not, like, a line someone's throwing at, like, a 15-year-old to make them feel special. Like, well, they're fucking Ryan Reynolds and waiting. It's It's especially different than, like for this period when, you know, you, you see this where, like, women aren't given educations. Like, it's the whole thing of, like, the moral of Susan Sarandon writing that letter to the teacher who slapped the, the who, who like, got the switch and, like, whomped mm -hmm. uh, Kirsten Dunst. Um, women aren't given educations because of sexist men. Women mm -hmm. aren't expected to read. Female exhaustion is because they're confined to the house, not because women are naturally frail. Um, all, of, all of these little bits in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It makes sense for her to be truly extraordinary for this time period because mm -hmm. of the opportunities or lack thereof mm -hmm. of other women. Yes. Agreed completely. And so as you're as you're talking about Susan Sarandon and Marmy, I love Marmy as like a matriarch character. I love that she is like such a like proto-feminist in terms of her views on like what women should be able to pursue, how the schools are shitty. Like she homeschools the girls, not because like she's a weirdo religious freak or something, but because she's like, you're not giving my girls a fair chance. Fuck you. Mm -hmm. I'll take care of it. Will the girls will monitor each other. Mm -hmm. We don't need you. I love that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. They can build themselves their own little, little community mm -hmm. where they don't have to deal with a bunch of bullshit. I, I think the lack of, uh, a lot of men like we don't even see like the shitty teacher in this movie there's a a pretty low number of shitty men in this movie is probably one reason that this is a big christmas time comfort watch for a lot of a lot of women and queer people around mm -hmm. the holiday season mm -hmm. and going back to this oral history susan sarandon even said 
that very often on movies that have a lot of women in the cast, people always start rumors about fights, but this was not like that at all. And I think that also reads on screen. Like they feel like a family. Mm -hmm. Everybody on this feels like this is a very warm environment. Uh, Kirsten Dunn said, you know, it felt like summer camp. I was the little sister who got to work with all of the cool older girls. I remember Susan telling me that she wears a different perfume for each role. So I started doing that on my next couple of films. Mm -hmm. And then Eric Stoltz said, I had such a crush on Susan. I love this so much. It's like what, learning that Chad Michael Murray like got to impress his dad because he got to kiss Jamie Lee Curtis on Freaky Friday. And so like I secretly love these like young male actors being like, I had such a crush on this older woman I worked with. We, that just it it makes the my whole heart sing. internet has a crush on Susan Sarandon. So let's unpin that pin from earlier. So Susan Sarandon, there was some stuff going on with her recently. Mm-hmm. So she was. So I just I just want to get this out of the way. Susan Sarandon was fired by her reps for um n- for her choice of words, not so much her sentiment. Correct. And Correct. that was something that was lost on the internet because people were like. Oh my God! There, there's a lot of gut reactions people have to the you know stuff going on with with Gaza and Israel, and we are obviously all about from the river to the sea. Mm-hmm. Care we care immensely about that on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Susan Sarandon also cares about that. However, she said like, "Oh, finally the Jews will get to feel what it's like or to whatever." To be Muslim, and it's just and like, it was like Susan, like <laughs> you. I don't think you're anti-Semitic, but the thing you just said is really anti-Semitic, and not even like the way of like you can't criticize Israel because that's anti-Semitism. Like, no, that was literally like you said right. the Jews. <laughs> yes. Um. So <laughs> she did. She did clarify what she meant. Um, in her apology statement, honestly, which, I think this is a very tasteful like, way of handling apology for real. And I'm going to read why, it. This is why I'm down with Susan. And I'm going to read it because like, this is exactly how you say the apology. She goes, recently, I attended a rally alongside a diverse group of activists seeking to highlight the urgent humanitarian crisis in Gaza and call for a ceasefire. I had not planned to speak, but was invited to take the stage and say a few words. Sarandon began intending to communicate my concern for an increase of hate crimes. I said that Jewish Americans, as the targets of rising anti-Semitic hate, are getting a taste of what it's like to be Muslim in this country, so often subjected to violence. The phrasing was a terrible mistake, as it implies that until recently, Jews have been strangers to persecution, while the opposite is true. As we know, from centuries of oppression and genocide in Europe to the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jews have long since been familiar with discrimination and religious violence, which continues to this day. I deeply regret diminishing this reality and hurting people with this comment. It was my intent to show solidarity to the struggle against bigotry of all kinds, and I am sorry that I failed to do so. This is is why Susan is mother. This is why Susan is mother. And this is why she is the perfect mother for the March family. Yes. She is the matriarch. Yes. And just to clarify, if there is any confusion, like Susan's intent has always been correct. But right now, given what is happening in Israel with the genocide in Gaza, like you big ha- people have to be careful with how they are talking about it because it's so easy for anti-Zionism to become anti-Semitism. Oh yeah, like but they're not one in the same. There, there's there's a difficult thing that we'll we'll get back to the movie in a second. But like yep. there's a, there's a difficult. But this is a very important thing, and we haven't had the opportunity to talk about it without it sounding like, hey guys, yeah, we're two white podcasters here yeah. to talk to you about peace in the Middle East. Like we're not doing that shit. Yeah, so. The issue that you have is that a lot of people saw the headline of Susan Sarandon being let go 
for a statement. They did not see the statement and then immediately were distracted by her son just being like, hey, uh, can you all stop talking about my mom's honkers? Uh, okay, Miles Robbins, though, that shit was hilarious. That was the best tweet of the week. Um, it was very funny. I think the world needed that. It was a very intense time, and that was really but yes, funny. <laughs> as a result of that, people did not, pe- people, some stuff got lost there because we yes. were immediately distracted by Susan Sarandon's boobs. Yes. Which are obviously great. They're incredible. Big, Put big them in fan. the Louvre. Of course. The issue that you have now is you need that we as a whole need to be digesting stuff better because there are also people in this world who are going to have a a weird reckoning where they're going to have to start compartmentalizing feelings of I am pro Gaza. However, I'm going to by just default end up on the same side as people who are pro Gaza because they are anti-Jew. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that is going to get really ugly very, very soon oh, on already, a large scale. Yeah, it's already, like it's already happening. happening. It's going to get bigger and it's going to get worse. Um, so I just need people to start figuring out how to process things d- deeply. It is a very good time to learn how to hold those multiple truths and use the, the expression of and mm-hmm. and not but. Yes. Like that is a very, it is a very important time. Yes. Like genocide is bad and and anti-Semitism is also, also fucking bad. bad. Yes. <laughs> like, so they can both be bad. Susan Sarandon, who we love, she is not in that much of this movie. However, the air of Susan Sarandon, the presence of Susan Sarandon matters. The influence of her mothering on these girls is very apparent. Correct. Yeah, I love her. She's so good in this movie. I think she's just a phenomenal Marmy. I think she just very much captures exactly who this character needs to be. And yeah, I love her because she has so much warmth when she's, you know, really nurturing the girls, but also like she'll cut a bitch. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is that is why she is mother. Yep. <laughs> All those lovely lines. I'm perfectly desolated. Well, I'm not sorry you lost them. It's a frivolous concern in times like these. You are more intent upon reshaping your dear little nose than in fashioning your character. It's an appalling school. Your spelling's atrocious, your Latin absurd. Mr. Davis said it was as useful to educate a woman as to educate a female cat. I really must strangle Mr. Davis. Mr. Davis. What right have you to strike a child? In God's eyes, we are all children and we are all equals. If you hit and humiliate a child, the only lesson she will learn is to hit and humiliate. Amy, do you think you can discipline yourself to learn at home as Beth has done? I withdraw my daughter Amy from your school. Serves the scoundrel right. Joe will now supervise your education. And so we were already kind of talking about her a little bit earlier, but we can talk about Meg. Meg is played by Trini Alvarado. Um, In this oral history, she said that she's very proud because she has the distinction of being the only Puerto Rican and Spanish Meg, which I think is very, very cool. Um, And it was her Puerto Rican mom who first gave her the book. And she said that everything other than the corsets was a dream, <laughs> which I really like. I like Meg. I think Meg kind of gets shit on. Well, she's a like bit. the oldest kid, mm-hmm. which means like here, here's 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 the dynamic of the of this family. You have Joe, who is the de facto leader. You have Amy, who is the little one, 
and you have Beth, who's like the forgotten middle child. And then you have Meg, who is the more forgotten, actually oldest sister. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I love Meg so much. I love the way that she interacts with Joe, where she does have this kind of like, she does have default, like, oldest daughter energy, which I think anybody who is the oldest daughter understands what this is like, where mm-hmm. you are a bit of a parental figure. So she doesn't get to be as like free spirited and, and as wild as Joe, because she's been parenting, you know, co-parenting these kids for some time now. Um, but I love when she starts falling in love with John because it's the first time that we see her kind of like take off that like oldest daughter armor mm-hmm. and let herself be a little bit more vulnerable and like, let herself be a little freer and it's so just like exciting to watch because I think like even if it's not the oldest daughter I think we all have those friends like we have those mom friends that are so worried about taking care of everybody else that they never allow themselves to just like live their own life oh yeah and so when you finally see it happening it's like oh you're doing it (laughs) well I think she's having to like Certainly in the first half of this movie, which is before father comes home, Mm -hmm. I think that that's when she is needing to step up and fill a a role that is being left out. Like they're all sort of her and Joe are taking like a more father figure thing. Mm -hmm. They're they're picking up the slack of of him not being there. Mm hmm. Yeah. And she's also like she's also like got these like really sweet insecurities that I love because when Joe's like, hey, we're going to have Teddy come over and do with our plays. She's like, no. We can't have a man in our house. Like we're de- we're delivering our innermost secrets. Yeah, the, like they're all just like, no, this is our vulnerable time because you know that she's so protective of like er, er, how she's presented to the real world, and this is when she gets to like really let loose is with her sisters. Now she's like, motherfucker, you're inviting a man up in here, and now I have to like worry about Into what he's going to think of me. Oh, I love it. They'll make fun of us for wearing monocles and silly mustaches. <laughs> I love Meg. I think she's so sweet. And I love, you know, that she's she's got like the ultimate wife guy who like John thinks he's like so slick and he's so he's infatuated not, he's with a, her. He's such a dork who loves I her. I love him. Eric Stoltz is so cute in this movie. I just I love him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so then we also have uh, the tale of two Amy's. People fucking hate Amy March. They hate her so much. And I understand why they hate her. And it's because she's one of the few 12-year-olds in literature and just in media in general who actually acts like a fucking 12-year-old. Yep. Like, um, she's a brat. <laughs> she's such a fucking brat. I... But she's not a brat as in, like, oh, this is, like, a terrible, like, aspect of her personality and she's going to be like this way forever. She's going to grow out of it. This just comes with being the youngest sibling. Yes. Um, Especially when you're around, like, something that I love about Kirsten Dunst during this era, um, both her and... Winona are coming off of like period appropriate vampire films. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Kirsten has the like the daunting task of being much older in her vampire film than she actually is. And she's so well spoken. She has excellent diction. And I think that that is really important for how we see her in this movie because she's she's kind of having to like raise herself up and compete with like her sisters in terms of being like a little woman mm-hmm. in terms of being like, Oh, not a girl. Yes. Um, but then you see those girlish traits come out by her being the little sister and being a fucking brat. And this is where I think she is a great character. And also she and I have beef. <laughs> How dare you destroy someone's manuscript? Like that is like, 
every time that scene happens and it's like let it go let it go and it's like when joe that's so much work when joe screams i'll kill you it's like i know what that feels like yes that is sisters all fucking day so when this happens and we see it a little bit less when they grow up and amy grows up and you know they go their separate ways in the second half of the movie but the question i had for bj at this point was i wonder how this movie scans if you are like didn't grow up with sisters or if you are an only child, like how does this movie hit versus someone like you mm-hmm. who absolutely had a dramatic little sister? Uh, yeah, I still have a dramatic little sister. She's well, in her she's a, 30s. She's, she's a dramatic adult now. Still but a yes. dramatic little sister. <laughs> yeah, but like I wonder if this hits way closer to home if you have sisters. I think so. I think if you have sisters, like this movie is going to resonate with you because the sisterhood is so well depicted and that you are both like simultaneously best friends, um, mother, daughter and mortal enemies. Like that is the relationship of sisters. Mm -hmm. And you see that happening with all of them kind of in different points. Like at any given moment, one of them is parenting another one, regardless of age. One of them is the best friend of the other, regardless of age. And mm-hmm. one of them is a mortal enemy, regardless of age. Oh, like, they're like, there's even like a rivalry before they know anything about Teddy. And they're just like, I wanted to dance with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's it's a whole thing. And I love Amy as a character. Like it's Amy is a character that it has taken me a while to like fully get on board with because when I, you know, I'm the older sister. So Mm -hmm. the little sister is always going to, by default, annoy the shit out of me. By default, it's like, I'm not on your side. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Because, oh, I know you. I know how you work. Uh, But as an adult, like looking at this relationship, I think Amy has like slowly become like one of my favorite of the, like Joe is always the favorite. She's in her own category. But I think Amy is becoming one of my favorites because I love watching her have to kind of like she she's almost code switching in a way mm. because she doesn't want to be left behind by her sisters who were much older than her. And we see her kind of like throw that tantrum of like, well, why can't I go to the thing? I never get to go to these things. I'm too little. What the hell? Yes, you are. Like, and it's that's like, well, the, yeah, you are, baby. That's yeah. reality. And like, it sucks. I, I'm, I'm as sorry. As the person who was the youngest sibling and the youngest cousin in my family, like I get being too small, but I also accepted the fact that I'm like, yeah, sometimes I'm just not old enough to do shit. Mm-hmm. But that's and like oftentimes a, I would get dragged against my will. And that's why I got forced to drive a golf cart and hit a picnic table full of relatives at a reunion one time. What? Oh, did you not hear the story? I feel like I've heard the story, but I would like to know again. <laughs> what? Um, I think I was like seven and we were just we were out in the country for a family reunion. And they were like, we're going to just drive a golf cart around the property because everyone likes racing and cars and shit like that. And I don't. And they were like, drive the thing. I'm like, I don't want to. And they're like, well, you do it. It's not that hard, you baby. And um, I'd never driven anything. And I didn't. Well, yeah, you're seven. I didn't realize that, like, there's there's two pedals. And certainly in a time of crisis, um, I don't know, like, how fa- I push the pedal down, go way too fast, go, ah, and then try to, like, hit the brake, but am panicking because I'm seven and then hit the gas harder and then swerve to miss some, like, plastic lawn geese and ended up running into a picnic table full of people. Well, I don't know what anyone else expected. You know, yes, I agree. <laughs> they shouldn't have made me do that. I, th- I think that's maybe like one of those things where it's like you're either going to force your little sibling to do something they don't want to do or you're going to like specifically go like, we don't want you here. There's no in between. <laughs> that's right. You have to play a boy. Otherwise, who's going to be Rodrigo or whatever? 
Okay, but that is a thing though. Like that kind of does fit in. Like the the little sibling always has to be the character nobody wants. Yeah. Even though, like, I think playing Rodrigo that that's a very respectable role. Sure. Personally, let's go with that. We we love Rodrigo with this household. <laughs> um, but our final March sister, uh, oh Beth. Oh, Beth, Claire Danes. We're, we're closing out this year on a double dose of Claire Danes on this show. We are. If you are on our Patreon, our Molly tier, we are finishing up My So-Called Life. And My So-Called Life is how she got this job. Because this is her first film. This is her very first film. Mm-hmm. They showed clips of her on My So-Called Life, and they're like, no, look at this girl. She's incredible. Her screen test is Beth dying. And I guess they saw uh, Claire Danes' little chin quiver, and they all started crying, and they're like, that's her. That, that's our Beth. Uh-huh. The... The power of Claire Danes in this, like, we were getting ready for a wedding when we were watching it, and I intentionally, like, picked when I was going to do my makeup so that I didn't have to, like, really invest in Beth dying, because I've seen it a million times. Sure. Because I knew that I would start crying, and it's like, I have a wedding to go to today. I have to look nice. I cannot be crying about Beth March dying. Mm -hmm. But, oh, it just, like, it guts me. Like, I can't imagine what that is like as much as like I want to kick my little sister in the fucking teeth all the time throughout my entire life like I I can't imagine this pain mm-hmm. like th- thinking about the hypothetical is like getting me choked up right now yeah um but Claire Danes is doing so much incredible work because Beth is secretly the strongest of all of these sisters like and she spends so much of this movie sick mm-hmm. and yet she is so resilient and has such like a good energy about her and like the work that Claire Danes is doing is just so masterful. Like you look in her eyes and you just like want to just barf. You're like, she's so incredible in this. So when she dies, when that, when like, when the window happens, I'm just like, no, <laughs> I like can't handle it. So this might be a slightly controversial take, but that's not the scene that got me. Really? There, I think because when she dies, like there is like an acceptance to it. Like it's tragic of like she didn't want to be left behind and she was mostly bedridden for a lot of like the last few years. Like that's very sad. But like there's like a calmness to it. There's a peace to that that I find to be not like it's sad, but it's not tragic. It's almost like. Yeah. It's almost like, you know what? You're not you're not suffering anymore. You're not getting left behind anymore. Mm -hmm. Now we have to catch up with you eventually. Like Mm -hmm. there's something beautiful about that for me. The scene that gets me is uh, when they like very frailly bring her downstairs during Christmas and gift her a piano and her face. I know. Oh, my God. God. She's smiling, but her eyebrows are like pained and she's welling up Mm -hmm. and like, oh, my God. It's the kind of one where like you are overwhelmed, but you're not letting yourself cry. So then your face ends up so tight that you're probably going to get a tension headache. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when you cry. Yes. It's horrible. (laughs) Um, That strain on her face. That's that's the part that hurts me because things it's been a hard year. And this is a beautiful, happy moment. Mm-hmm. Merry Christmas. Oh, my God. It's just like, ah. okay, so I'm going to lift the room up a little bit because otherwise I will start crying. Uh, going back to this oral history, we got some stories about Beth dying. Um, so one thing, when they're all carrying the candles, apparently Claire Danes' wig caught on fire. And Winona Ryder had to like beat the shit out of her to make the fire Great. go out. So Trini Alvarado was like, Winona slapped the shit out of her, which I think is really funny. But it's like, hey, that's how you get a fire out. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how they did that. Winona Ryder's a doer. She is. She took control of that situation. She was not going to let Beth's wig 
get burned, which I think is so funny. Um, <laughs> but they were all like dreading the death scene because obviously like it's, it's a lot um, because Claire Danes is just magnificent. I guess she went to a lot of hospices and like visited people who work with the dead and dying um, to learn more about it so that she was going to be authentic about it. Um, and, uh, Claire Dan said, I don't, I don't remember that, but I did do a fair amount of research. Dying can be a little fun with Beth. There's a death rattle. It's like, and then I guess she like made like a guttural noise. Mm -hmm. And the day we shot that scene, my death rattle got progressively louder until Jillian was like, Claire, you've got to kill it with that death rattle. (laughs) Like, I guess it was just too much. (laughs) Um, but they ended up having a technical issue and there were chemical spots all over the scene. So they had to, that the only scene that was reshot was Beth's death, which like, I can't imagine having to do that Just twice. Get, get back in the headspace. Oh my God. That'd be so hard. Um, so like, that's a lot, but the death scene was also a big deal when they were showing the film to like studios or whatever. So the studio's expectations were so low that executives were caught off guard when they saw the finished product. And Jillian Armstrong, the director says, 15 men in suits watched the rough cut. And one of the most moving, memorable moments of my life was when the lights came up and they said, we were dreading having to come and see this little girl's film, but we loved it and we cried and we want to give you some more money. <laughs> and then Denise Zanovi says, the funny thing about the movie in general is that men would cry and be so surprised, but women already know that Beth dies, so they're more prepared for it. Uh-huh. And I love that because that's very, very true. I think we saw something, sim- like we see similar things happening whenever there's something big, like like Barbie was the big one this year, where there were so many moments in it that like caught men off guard and they're like, I didn't know about this. And mm-hmm. girls are like, bitch, we've been doing this since we were five. Like, what are you talking about? Or or us knowing what the Von Erich story is like. And so we were emotionally prepared for it better than people who was like, I know nothing about uh, wrestling. Oh, and I still fucking lost my mind and cried. <laughs> I could not help it. That's a, that's a Greek tragedy. But no, you're, that's exactly it. Like wrestling fans all know the story of the Von Erichs. So when like when all those images of Zac Efron were coming out and people were like, ooh, daddy. Look at his we silly like, haircut. No, so <laughs> don't thirst. You're going to regret it. I promise. Mm-hmm. You're going to get the saddest boner. Oh, God. Uh, but like that's pretty much what it is with Little Women is like if you don't know this story and Beth dies, you're like what she died and like it's so sad but if you're a woman you're like no I knew it was coming it's still really sad but I knew it was coming Mm -hmm. and so then like it's at least like like you said like you're able to see the comfort of like she's not suffering anymore like this is weirdly beautiful Mm -hmm. um yeah that's I think that's just such a poignant thing for the producer to point out because she's totally right yeah oh Joe I've missed you so Why does everyone want to go away? I love being home. But I don't like being left behind. Now I'm the one going ahead. I am not afraid. I can be brave like you, but I know I shall be homesick for you, even in heaven. Um, but to kind of like close things out. So it was nominated for three Oscars. It didn't win anything. Winona Ryder was actually up against Susan Sarandon 
uh, for the movie Should the Client. Mm -hmm. uh, neither of them won. And Winona Ryder said, I was not expecting it all. I remember talking to Susan on the phone about what we were going to wear. And I was actually going to borrow something of hers. And Susan Sarandon goes, oh, well, you know, it's Jessica Lange's year for Blue Sky. And I was like, oh, trust me, I know. It was so much more fun because my previous nomination was for Age of Innocence, where there was so much pressure. And then Jillian Armstrong says, I've joked now that the Academy has greater diversity and invited so many more women voters in. And I should ask for a revote of Little Women. And like, I think that that's that's fair. Greta Gerwig was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for her take on Little Women. So... Mm, who knows who yeah. fucking knows how that cookie would have crumbled back yeah. then <laughs> i don't know but as, as as a christmas story because like th this is our this is our christmas episode we're not doing a christmas episode next week mm -hmm. yeah this is our christmas episode and i do know that this is a christmas tradition for a lot of people listening because you have all told us yeah in our inbox which it just makes me so delighted <laughs> yeah something that gets me about this is like Yes, it has multiple Christmas scenes because it happens over the course of several years. But like the big sentiment of it and why I think it works best as a Christmas movie is the concept of being together. Mm -hmm. Like the saddest fucking part of this movie, aside from, you know, just Claire Danes absolutely ruining us all, um, is that after Beth dies, there's a conversation between Joe and her mom that's like, are we all ever going to truly be together again? And oh, like, it like guts me. That line guts me. <laughs> like that shit is fucking hard. Like I, for my family growing up, like, you know, we're not that close. I don't talk to pretty much any of them ever. We would see each other like three times a year. It's like eh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, whatever. And that would be the only times we would all come together. And it's the only time that would ever be a thing. And you get to see what my cousin is this year. What What's his new identity this year? Is he really into Nightmare Before Christmas? Or is he a redneck drinking about how much beer he drinks? Or, you know, the, you know I'm, I'm now a, a, a bro-y bro guy. And I'm going to talk about how good it feels when a condom breaks. Like, what's what's his personality this year? <laughs> what changed over the last 10 months? That, that, that was never a thing that, like, I associate with Christmas. But, like, as far as the spirit of Christmas is concerned, like, that's... That, that's a strong feeling, and I'm getting very, very um, wistful for people I haven't seen in a long time back home. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, like, there's just, there's just people that I haven't seen in a long time. And I'm also, like, I'm such a bad replier to messages. I'm essentially a pen pal. Mm -hmm. Like, for all intents and purposes, you might be sending – you must be sending this from, like, the U.S. in the 1800s to London. That letter's going to get there three months later. Mm-hmm. That's how I operate where I'm like, I'll see your message and I promise I will get to this, but I am not good at replying to things. I'm just tired and busy all the time. And I think I'm doing a bad job of keeping up with people that I miss, but like there's, I'm, I'm bad at showing that, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. There's, there's just a lot about that sentiment that's, that gets getting me. Yeah. It, it guts me really hard because uh the holidays are hard for me just in general because i am infinitely more sentimental than you are well yeah but i'm coming up on six years since the last time i've been with my parents and my sister all together um i recently got to see my sister uh for a couple hours because i was i had a work trip that just happened to be in dallas where she lives the iron claw bringing people together yeah, i know so i got to see my sister and it was the first time i had seen her in six years uh and it was it was like my sister has never met you in person and like that destroys me and my parents 
Um, you know, we haven't seen them since 2020. 2020 yeah. yeah. So I haven't seen my parents in three years. I hadn't seen my sister in six years and our whole family hasn't been together in six years. Well, like it's one, we're all spread across. We're like, spread across the, the country. country and we're poor, like yeah. straight up like that. That's the reality of the situation. And like the luxury to be able to travel. The luxury to be, because it's not even just traveling. Like, I can afford a plane ticket. I can't afford to take off work. Yeah. They can't afford to take off work. It's so difficult, and I am getting emotional. And it's it's so frustrating sometimes, especially because, and I'm going to sound like such a privileged asshole in talking about this, but, like, I'm so lucky that I do have a good family. Like I have a family that loves each other. Like there's not like weird animosity. I don't like, like avoid my family. Like I'm so fucking lucky in that regard. And it just kind of feels like the cruel reality of the universe is that like, I got lucky enough to have like a family that is not fractured and not broken, but we don't get to see each other. And then like, that's the monkey spa. That's like that's the monkey's paw. Me, because I, I choose not to go back to Ohio, but like you would love well, to visit your family. Yeah, well, it's not even that. It's just like I have so many friends that are like, oh yeah, I'm going back home for Christmas, and like I'm dreading it because I fucking hate my family. And it's like, you know, obviously, like take the time that you have, like make those memories, but like it, it fucking kills me that I don't get to see them ever, and like it's just we can't. We can't like the circumstances have made it so that we can't. And it's really hard. And so like, that's another reason why, like in watching this, I was like, I'm going to curl my hair. I'm going to do my makeup. I'm not going to like fully invest in this because I already know what's going to happen. And I know how this goes because like, I just, what little women does to me, like it makes me do this mm -hmm. and I didn't have time to do this yesterday. I had to save it for here, I guess in front of, you know, strangers listening to me cry on a microphone hey um hey <laughs> what you almost made it the whole year without crying on mic oh my god you're right i was so close fuck me <laughs> i think this is the first time this year <laughs> there's no way it's the first time this year it might be oh someone who certainly of certainly to this extent <laughs> someone who pays attention to the show better than i do <laughs> tell me if i cried earlier this year um mm. But yeah, like this is this is what I was like trying to like keep cool about yesterday when yeah. you were watching this for the first time because I was like, I don't want me crying to influence how you feel about this movie because there have been movies before that we've watched where like I'm a sobbing mess and Harmony's like that was fine, yeah, <laughs> and I was like I just don't have that in me today. <laughs> so until before I start crying even more. Harmony, Little Women is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Are you buying them a ticket so that they can go on their own? The, the, this is a really difficult one for me to place because... Because it's an anti-Harmony movie. You can say that. They're it, not going to be upset. They know you don't like movies like this. No, but here, here's the thing with that is um, I don't think I enjoyed watching it, but I enjoy having watched it, if that makes sense. Okay. Because I'm really enjoying, like, discussing these characters and breaking them down and everything that we're, we've talked about in this episode. Mm -hmm. But just the actual period piece aspect of it is just like, I'm like, yeah, this is just not my flavor. Mm -hmm. But I like the characters. I like what the thing is doing. I think everyone's really spectacular. Mm -hmm. So it's a yes, but I don't know how often I'm going to watch this movie. Mm -hmm. 
but I like having watched this movie. I, li- I like being able to know that I've watched it and think about this movie mm-hmm. after having watched it. This is like the, I don't like writing. I like having been, I like having written. I don't even think that's true for me, but that <laughs> the sentiment's similar. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very curious now that you've seen this to see how the Greta Gerwig one is going to impact you. I think that the Catherine Hepburn one, as much as I love it, I think you're going to be like, fuck this movie. Well, that but one's I, from like the fifties or whatever, right? Yeah, it's old. Yeah. Um, but I think that you'll, I think, I think you might really like the Gerwig one, especially because she does some really interesting stuff with timelines that I think, okay. I think you're going to like, but we will, I don't know. Maybe we'll be doing that one next time for Christmas. We'll, mm. we'll see. We'll see. Um, but on that note, that takes us out on little women. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and blue sky at this ends up prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor or at Blue Sky at Harmony Colangelo. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what artist do you want people to check out this week inspired by Little Women? I am shouting out to the uh, music collective of Rainbow Girls. Oh, what a great title. They are, um, I think it's a super group of like three singer-songwriters who have come together and have made albums pretty consistently for a bit now. They put out an album uh, a couple months ago called Welcome to Whatever and they are very um very rootsy, very stripped down mm-hmm. and their vocal harmonies are just, like so good. Like nice. they they gel so warm and and wonderfully. Um most of these are like they feel like waking up and having like a dinette set and drinking coffee in like the sunrise or listening way late at night. Like this just feels like very good um contemplative alone time music Ooh. that is also quite cozy um as far as favorite tracks on this album is concerned uh just from a, the few times i've gone through it my favorites are compassion to the nth degree no limits and patriotism killed the cat <laughs> that's a great title <laughs> yeah but like the whole thing is absolutely with your time if you just want to to just bask in it love it and that's rainbow girls Alrighty, y'all. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.